Friday lunchtime lectures at the Open Data Institute. Hi everybody and welcome to the ODI Friday's lunchtime lecture. Today's speaker is Graham Hogg. Uh, Graham started his career as a Royal Marines Commando Officer and is now the leader of ConnectWorks, who work with teams and businesses to build the right data-driven culture. Um, if you've got any questions in the audience, please wait until the end of the talk and we'll hand around the microphone so that people who are watching um, externally can hear the questions. And if you've got any questions uh, for those of you who are watching online, then please use the hashtag ODI Fridays. And I'll hand over to Graham now. Thank you. Good afternoon. Can everybody hear me okay? Um, I'd like to start by telling you a story, if, if that's okay. So about... 12 years ago, I found myself walking to breakfast on my own. I was 25 years old and an officer in the Royal Marines. And I was in a place called Kandahar Airfield, just to the east of Kandahar City in the south of Afghanistan. And my mission that day was to lead about 67 Marines and soldiers on a convoy operation from Kandahar City to Helmand Province. It was going to take about six or seven hours. And as I was walking along, I remember thinking through everything um, that we needed to achieve that day. The sort of efficiency of the team that I was leading around, the way that we um, used the vehicles, the way that we used our various weapon systems, the way that we communicated with each other, and also the tactics that we had been practicing actions on a vehicle getting lost or separated, actions on a casualty situation, actions on sort of vehicle or equipment failure. And as I was walking to breakfast that day, I realised two things, which was very rather early on in my career. The first was the importance of leadership, and the second was the loneliness of leadership. And I believe passionately in today's sort of analytics and data-driven world where robots are about to invade the coffee area and we're inundated with advanced analytics and data science and AI, I still believe that the role of leadership and leadership oversight in the way that we make decisions is going to be, and still is, of critical importance. What I'd like to talk to you today is share my experiences as a military intelligence officer and the, the last sort of five or six years working with business teams in how to unlock the potential of big data. The mission that I talked to you um, about just now was is just depicted on the map, moving from point A, Kandahar, Kandahar City, to point B, Helmand Province. Those 67 Marines and soldiers were about to get into vehicles of various sizes, ranging from a Pinsgauer um, type or sort of Land Rover type vehicle, which was quite small and had high sort of manoeuvrability, to large lorries and sort of heavy equipment transporters. And due to those vehicles, we were fixed to a glacial pace of about 15 miles an hour. From the head of the convoy to the tail, we made up a footprint on the ground of about a kilometre and a half. We were indeed a big and slow 
moving target. Well, that's certainly what it felt like going into Kandahar City that morning. We were told that the threat that was presented to us was going to come, on, come to us in all sorts of different shapes and sizes, ranging from individuals um, on motorbikes, individuals in cars with an IED sort of threat, an improvised explosive device threat. As we left Kandahar um, Airfield that morning, we were delayed departing for reasons I can't explain. But I felt like something wasn't quite right. And as we started moving into the city, I remember looking up to the sky, a sort of dark and gloomy Afghan sky in December, and seeing kites of all sorts of different sort of shapes and sizes dancing in the wind. And I knew that they weren't flown by young children, but rather men and women with arguably a more menacing goal, signalling our approach. The enemy, the enemy that we faced, although you could never compete with a multi-million dollar organisation that we were, always had this ability to out-innovate or some circumnavigate our equipment and sophistication. At three minutes past ten, a vehicle-borne IED drove into a Land Rover containing three Marines under my command and detonated, detonated a device, injuring those three Marines severely. What kicked in, which you can probably expect from a team of British Royal Marine commandos, was a high-performing team, and specifically a casualty evacuation procedure. The drill was that the rest of the convoy would go past that IED site, and I still, to this day, remember driving past those three Marines slumped over, covered in blood, covered in mud from the explosion, but having confidence in the, the team behind me that they would pick up those three casualties, as they did, and take them to a place where they could find safety. And the junior corporal at the back of that convoy, to his, to his credit and superior sort of skill and talent, without the use of communications because they went down due to the, due to the explosion, used his, his um, initiative, drove those three casualties to a local sports field where the helicopter could land and those three, those three Marines' lives were saved, if not with life-changing injuries. I woke up the next morning, and it was my birthday, actually, the following day. <clears throat> and I went to the intelligence centre and went to speak to a friend of mine called Ads. And he explained to me that this spike in IED activity in Kandahar City was between 10 and 12 o'clock in the morning. And we got hit at three minutes past 10. That intelligence didn't get to me as a commander and inform the decision or the decisions that I was, that I was making. There are three things that I think organizations need to think about in order to unlock the potential of their data and the assets that they have available to them. The first thing is to close the gap between business teams and analytics teams. And there are cognitive gaps, there are semantic gaps, there are cultural gaps. But teams and organisations need to think about how can they improve the quality of collaboration between business and analytics teams. Secondly, business teams need to improve the quality of questions that they ask data. 
rather than asking for a report that tells them about something that happened yesterday, be forward-looking and discovery-driven in the way that they formulate and ask questions to data. And finally, a commitment to breaking intelligence silos. That I believe to be a cultural and leadership challenge as much as it is a technical one. I'll come back to those three components, components later, but let me just quickly um, articulate how data collection sort of changed over the last, has changed over the last <coughs> 10 or 15 years in the military. So I do believe the way that organisations collect data is where you can find significant advantage. Traditional sort of red-centric data collection looked like this. We knew the difference between the good guys, the bad guys, and the civilians. The good guys, the good guys were coded as blue. They were supportive of our mission, like a local police force. The civilians or local businessmen were coded at white. They were neutral to the success or failure of our mission. And the focus was all on red, the bad guys. They were tr deliberately trying to prevent us from being successful with our mission. And the focus was there. We knew who they were. We knew which uniforms they wore. We knew which, which vehicles they drove. We knew which languages they spoke. But going into a sort of counterinsurgency in, environment, like the one that we've been operating in in the last 15 years, the picture looks a little bit more complex, certainly from a data collection perspective. And, and, and intelligence professionals moved from this red-centric focus to looking at a much broader, holistic, fused picture. Whereas you can see on the slide there, the sort of connectivity between a um, local businessman, a local policeman, um, a, a, a criminal gang was, 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 was um, highly, highly connected. Where this sort of manifested itself in the worst possible way is a local Afghan policeman or army um, um, individual walking into a British military camp behind the wire and starting to um, shoot uh, British, British soldiers. So the, it, when it came to the complexity that we faced and the way that we approached and collected data, we had to sort of take a step back and be much more sort of broad and grey rather than going out there and focusing on what we, thought, on th what we thought we knew. The picture was much more complex. And I think if you spoke to Anheuser-Busch or L'Oreal, if you're running a city or a hospital, the environment in which we ask leaders to operate in today looks much more complex. The interdependencies and second and third order consequences from decisions across different stakeholder groups is now much more complex. Look at the way that financial services is being disrupted by fintech and the way that craft beer is disrupting large sort of um, household brands. And the way in which organisations can be successful in environments like this is not through efficiency, not by being the highest performing team and throwing money at eliminating waste. The mindset, I think, born out of a, a manufacturing age, a much more sort of stable environment. There's one thing I'd like you to take away from the last few slides. It's through understanding that organisations are going to be successful in this environment. And specifically, understanding being perishable. You can't go away to an off-site for two days with a consultancy and really focus on your market and your competitors go back to the desk and say, great, we all now understand much better. That may be true, but as the days and weeks and months go past, 
that understanding gets degraded. So from an organisational perspective, you must commit to maintaining that level of understanding. And too often, executives turn to their analysts or their, their data science teams and say, go and, go and find, out, find out this. It's very sort of siloed or sort of project-driven. Organisations need to commit to maintaining this cup of understanding due to its perishability. And intelligence and, and, and the way that we use data contributes to that significantly. And it all comes down to organisations moving from trawler fishing, which is just gathering loads of data, getting data scientists and saying, go out and try and find me something that's useful, to spear fishing. As an organisation and leadership teams know exactly what they're trying to look for. That's at the, at the team level, but also at the organisational level. And it starts with understanding. <clears throat> in this example from, from the military, the red box is an intelligence requirement. How can we understand how a group of people receive support from the local population? If we can understand that dynamic, then we can make decisions. We can either go and find the bad guys, we can build a school, we can support local business. But it all starts with what do we need to understand better? And in my previous career, we call that an intelligence requirement. Everything starts there, and it starts from the business team. Then we break that down into information requirements. In other words, questions to data. How can we, what do we need to know that's going to satisfy that intelligence requirement that's going to help us understand that better? And this example is where are the safe houses for that group of individuals? Where are they finding physical sanctuary? Or how are they, um, how are they receiving support from the local population? And then as the example on the left there, then you can go to the data that's going to answer that question. And from an organisational perspective, it's how good are we at collecting this data and, and fielding these questions coming from the organisation against that broad, intelligent understanding requirement. So in a commercial example, if you're um, a beer company, an intelligence requirement might be low-calorie beer in Northern California. Okay, that's just something that we want to understand. How are millennials interacting with low-calorie beer? By all accounts, millennials don't like um, drinking alcohol very much. They'll learn. But, yeah. um, you know, understanding the dynamic or understanding the relationship between our brands and our products and, and the, the, the populations that we're, we're interested in. From there, we can start formulating questions. But by bringing data professionals and business professionals together and having a conversation around that, what we refer to as a discovery theme, you're starting to close the cognitive gaps between business people and data people. Starting, what are you trying to understand? And then that comes to, then you start going to the formulation of questions. For example, what are the taste preferences in women under the age of 25 in San Francisco? And then, a, a, then, then from a technology perspective, you're providing teams with an interface that allows them to have a conversation around data, trying to remove the friction between business teams and data teams. So where the question is being asked and the data has been um, um, shared around that question under that discovery theme, 
teams and, and business and data people can then collaborate around that data through a conversational user interface, not a dashboard. I remember going to a business intelligence conference a few years ago in New York, and literally someone stood up and told the story about the, a dashboard of the week competition that they were having in their organization. I think that's fine. I think visualization is a great way to engage with, help people engage with data. But what we really want to stage is conversations around data and how that's answering the questions that we formulated and increase our level of understanding against the themes that are really, really important. So through speaking to a number of business teams and, and leaders, over, over, over 2,000 actually, and through the, the research of my, of my book, <clears throat> really started challenging the traditional paradigm of teamwork. So high-performing teams traditionally is that sort of image of an individual climbing a mountain with a team behind him or her, or an Olympic rowing team, everyone working in perfect, perfect synchronicity. Synchronicity. Um, I actually talk more about, um, or help teams think about, messy teams. So how can we stage a more messy interaction? And I know there's a lot of words on there, but if, on, on the, on the y-axis, it is a shift in authority from the executive to the team. So rather than the leader standing up saying, right, I need to know this, I need to know that, really you're, now you're starting to empower the team to come up with the right questions. And from an orientation perspective, it's a shift from execution, let's just deliver on the plan, towards discovery. There's a good, great article recently from some research from BCG called the 2% organisation. And if you imagine two Venn diagrams, on one side, you've got organisations' ability to execute flawlessly, and it's all about efficiency and um, you know, being you know, a high-performing organisation. And on the right-hand side, you have, this, uh, you have this capability to explore and discover. And very few organisations actually achieve both. In fact, less than 2%. And the examples that they quote are Zara Clothing, a fantastic example of an organisation that can gain insight from the fashion industry and then quickly deliver through a highly agile supply chain. Amazon, an organisation that arguably is very good at reinventing itself and exploring new things. And Toyota Cars, an organisation that we know is a fantastically um, efficient machine, but has now started to sort of pivot and think about um, alternative, alternative fuels. So very few organisations are good at those two things, but it starts with teams. And in the top right, which is where I call for teams to operate, the focus is on our purpose, who are we serving, um, and how do we create value for them? And then it's a, um, and, and that purpose is a handrail for exploration and discovery. And then a strong external orientation. So rather than focusing on the plan or the goals that I've been asked to deliver, having a strong um, external orientation with a questioning skill, and what I alluded to earlier, and a connected mindset inside the organisation. And I share this ratio with teams that someone um, told me many years ago in my um, sort of military intelligence officers course. This is a mindset that teams need to adopt when formulating um, th these questions. 0% yesterday, 20% today, 80% tomorrow. What's going to happen tomorrow? What's going to happen tomorrow? That's the orientation. That's the, 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 the mindset that we want messy teams 
to be, to be um, moving, moving towards. There are significant leadership challenges in operating this way that I see firsthand all the time. Is anyone familiar with the term hippo? The highest paid person's opinion. We know that organisations and teams fall victims of, of hippos, but arguably hippos are becoming extinct. Your, your sort of experience is still relevant, but now we've really got to focus and, 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 and listen to and respond to what the data is telling us. And groupthink and um, confirmation bias, we know that, that these are all the enemies of making data-driven decisions. So in this environment, you're starting to see teams be more hypothesis-led. So running key assumptions check, articulating a hypothesis and a set of assumptions, and then having conversations around that and um, identifying those gaps in our understanding and formulating the right questions to ask. And I stumbled upon what sort of popular topic at the moment, but how millennials are entering the workforce and what's the, what does the future of work look like? Well, it's, it's all about improving the quality of collaboration in teams. So whether you're working remotely, whether you're working with someone with a very sort of short tenure in the organisation, but you're, you're staging um, active, good sort of deb debate and discussion using such techniques as the ones I'm showing you on the slide there. The main sort of outputs of, of, of that interaction is to formulate better questions and challenge our thinking. So finally, what could you think about um, after today and perhaps when you, when you go back to your teams? I heard someone say this to me um, many years ago in my military career. In the teams that you're part of and the teams that you lead, how can you do that? How can you enthuse people to share the questions that you've come up with, to share the insights that you've come up with, to share the themes that you're trying to discover and enthuse people to, to do that every day. Because I believe, as a story I told at the start of this afternoon, nobody is as smart as everybody. Thank you very much. Great. Um, does anyone in the audience have any questions for Graham? Don't be shy. <laughs> So um, the question would, is it on? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. So the question, Graham, is um, so this is obviously um, the military is a very high-performing organisation. All the all the people have a kind of base level of competence and attitude. Um, now, in certain large companies, uh, especially in that middle layer of, of management and definitely management as opposed to leadership, um, there's lots of kind of vested interests and uh, people who are comfortable. Um, what would your advice be to a leader of a company like that who needs to get this message through that kind of permafrost layer down to the, the, the teeth of the organisation? Um, you mean to really sort of change their ways of working and, and thinking and acting this way? It's, it's definitely a, a, a big challenge. You know, Connect to it, we're a, we're a software company, but we're part of business transformation efforts. And I've been you know, taken aback by, by what is required um, in terms of sort of organisational design and process design um, and different roles and responsibilities. It's a big sort of change that I think that, we're, that you're seeing with, with, with companies. 
Um, I think leaders need to role model from, from the top um, and actually get involved in these conversations and get involved in these sort of messy team type interactions that I alluded to. And finally, I think just giving individuals the tools that they enjoy using rather than just sort of talking at them, taking them away for an off-site to a hotel for a couple of days and giving them some PowerPoint slides, give them the tools that they can use that's really going to change the culture. Because you see so many examples like Slack, which is a communications tool, has really changed sort of culture in some organisations and the way that teams communicate with each other. So give them something that they enjoy using and they're then um, supported by leadership. Hey Graham, um, great talk, um, and I'm a believer in what your, you know, your, your hypothesis and what you're stating. What are the key hurdles you, as you give this pitch to companies, that they need to get over? You know, what, what are the key things you like? Okay, we need to convince the leadership, or what I, is it exactly? I, yeah, I, th I think for me the biggest one is the sort of corporate planning cycles. You know, this idea of we've got a five-year vision, and we've got an annual mission or a goal all sorts of different names for these things. And I see so many teams go, well, I need, I need to execute this mission. I, I need to ex deliver these results. And if I sort of stare outside the window and start coming up with great questions, then I'm not going to sort of hit these targets. Um, and I think it's the ambidextrous sort of challenge here. So, so leaders need to be able to do both. They need to execute and deliver, but at the same time, they need that sort of strong orientation towards asking questions and and how can we sort of improve and, and, and adapt around what we need to deliver. And the way that we've worked around that is just helping them through ways of working. Not, nothing, not reinventing the wheel, things like agile ways of working, agile in the sense of sprints. So articulating a discovery theme, such as um, low-calorie low beer in North, North London, and sprinting against that theme for two weeks. And during those two weeks, we're going to do everything that we can to come up with high quality questions and getting data scientists and advanced analytics professionals inside that process. And I've just seen those, those sort of the, the data members of those team just rubbing their hands going, this is, this is fantastic, I'm really, because they're sort of on the front line, they're, they're with those um, business teams and they can see the tangible sort of real value that they're having rather than being sort of locked away in, in a room doing a separate project. So ways of working is a challenge, but the sort of broader corporate planning cycles is, is also a big challenge. And, I, and I, I see the big consulting firms like McKinsey and Bain um, challenging that as well now. A great book by Martin Reeves called Your Strategy Needs a Strategy. And he just talks about this sort of one-size-fits-all strategy doesn't, doesn't work anymore. So many different strategic landscapes that, that I think organisations need to consider. Thank you. Um, just uh, just want to get back to the story that you uh, you know you illustrated earlier about the um, information about the um, the uh, when the uh, when the um, the targeting is starting from ten to twelve. You said uh, the I the IED. Yeah. Um, w but would would that be considered data or um, or you seem collected through anecdotes? You know that. Um, yeah. Because. Yeah, that, that, that yeah. So, um, that was what I would call intelligence. So intelligence is something that changes the plan. It causes someone to do something differently. It comes from various data points, which I probably wouldn't share now. Um, 
but the intelligence was, don't drive through the city at that time. And that's how I make, that's how teams and individuals make decisions. So it's just getting leaders comfortable with this interplay between intelligence and data. Because we, we know that we've got the data the majority of the time. And I know that there are challenges with that, but it's helping connecting that to value and the values in the intelligence requirement. What are we trying to understand? Because that's where we make decisions. That makes sense. Have you got any more questions? So it's an interesting point you mentioned that uh, companies are using Slack to improve the communication or something. Could you talk a little bit more about how they use Slack to improve the how teams are working together? Um, Skip, I, I, I don't know if I'm that qualified to talk about Slack. I think Slack's great for teams. I really believe that because my, my organization is less than 30 people. We use Slack, it's great. I think Slack has challenges in scaling across... Um, the, the organization because you get m lots more channels and some people talk about a bell-shaped curve with Slack. It hits a point where productivity starts falling. Um, but I think Slack's great. We integrate with such tools ourselves and being able to sort of communicate really quickly using an interface that people enjoy using I, th I think is a great thing. But there will always be communications challenges inside organizations. Large organizations, and I don't know if Slack's solved for that, for an organization of sort of 200,000 people like Anheuser-Busch. But I think Slack's great, for the record. <laughs> uh, any more questions? Um, you mentioned having more conversations around data rather than just kind of visualizing it and seeing it as a, like, as a dashboard. So um, my question is, in kind of like an ideal working environment or an ideal world, what those conversations kind of look like in terms of like the different levels of the organization? Like how would they cascade down? How would we make mm. sure everybody's involved? Really, really good question. So I think we form groups and we sprint against discovery themes. So that's the sort of methodology that we help organizations um, adopt and those sorts of ways of working. What you've got to do is provide psychological safety inside groups. So there could be a group of eight people um, from different parts of the organization. We always say throw away the org chart and try and stage that cognitive diversity. That's where we know where the sparks fly. But they've got to feel sort of safe within that environment to ask questions and ask not so, you know, I don't know type questions or what, what does this mean type questions. Um, so those groups, I think, need to be sort of closed. People, they're, they're open so people can see, and see, see them. But um, individuals, I think, need to have that sort of psychological safety in the way that they, you know, sprint against these themes and that sort of way, way, way of working. I think with dashboards um, or sort of self-service, self you know, um, the self-serve headline, where I've seen limited sort of value come from it is um, self-serve reporting. So people just sort of getting obsessed with how pretty their dashboards are. Um, it's just reporting. It's just, and it's reporting what you want to report. So we're just trying to stage a bit more of a, a messy conversation. Where, and what you see is techniques like devil's advocacy, outside in thinking, key assumptions check, what if analysis, um, low probability, high impact analysis, quite rudimentary techniques 
but helping teams look at business problems from all sorts of different angles and coming up with better questions rather than the dashboard. Does that answer your question? Yeah, we've got any Yes, we do want to. Is it you or the online person? It's me. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, we were talking earlier, Graham, and you said that um, when you wrote your book, um, Seeing Around Corners, um, you spoke to over 2,000 individuals and organisations. Can you share what the most surprising or um, the most impressive story that you heard about how an organisation has used data to inform a decision? Yeah. So... Um, the most impressive story is working with Riley Newman, who's the Chief Data Officer at Airbnb. Um, I'll, get back to, I'll come back to that in a moment, but the sort of co consistent theme when speaking to Chief Data Officers, for example, is they're building their teams, there's, um, they're sort of finding an organisational home for data and investing a lot of money in the sort of right architecture and security and governance of that, which is the right thing to do. They're building their sort of data science teams and then they're going, right, how do we interact with the business um, and that was consistent across lots and lots of sort of industries and mainly in sort of Europe and North America who, who I speak, spoke to. So anchoring that advanced analytical skill set into everyday decision making was a um, consistent sort of challenge I saw the sort of CDO and sort of C-suite leaders facing. Um, what I thought Riley or the team at Airbnb did really well is use their purpose as their handrail. So the founders of Airbnb at the very start talked about having living room conversations. That's where the, the real sort of insight was, speaking to their hosts and their respective customers and really getting underst you know, understanding the sort of nuances of, of how they could basically improve their products and service. The question was, how do we scale that? And they scaled it using data. But the way that Riley has built his data science team and Airbnb's got the highest ratio from data science to business people. But it's um, scaling that living room conversation using data. And it's a pretty successful story, I think. Um, but yeah, Riley Newman's a great, great, great guy. I really enjoyed talking to him. Hi. Uh, thanks for that talk, Ram. Uh, I was thinking, so you said you were in Afghanistan. How long were you there? Six months, 2006. Okay. So I'm thinking, you know, in your line of work, you uh, also had the opportunity of working with the locals, uh, you know, in terms of gathering their support or helping them uh, stay away from danger from insurgents. So from all the data, from all the insights that you got gathered, uh, for your team, I mean, how did you relate that to the locals? Because I'm guessing that there are cultural barriers, there are communication gaps. <clears throat> so how do you deal with that situation? Well, it's re really, I think the best way to answer that is a highly complex situation. And that slide that I showed you, the really sort of complex side with all the moving, moving parts, just the way that we dealt with it is just this commitment to understanding, just understanding as best we could, understanding the dynamic between a tribal leader, a local businessman, an Afghan um, senior military officer, senior policeman, um, and just um, using um, information and, and, and data to understand that picture. Because the picture was changing all the time. 
Um, and as an organization, we just had to ad adapt and, and innovate to it as quickly as possible. So it was an organizational commitment to understanding rather than um, being this sort of efficiency machine, which had worked in conflicts previously. Um, and, I, and I just think that, you know, with organizations, and you see so many large companies that are world-class at sort of bottom-line management, um, they're just lacking that sort of organic growth. They're, they're, they're losing market share from sort of SME and mid-cap companies because I think they just need to sort of think again about how do we understand our environment a little bit better. That's the fuel of innovation. Is that okay? Yeah. Uh, any more questions? Any from online? How was that captured? Could you speak into the microphone? Sorry. How was that captured? I mean, now you say we can use Slack, for example and we can capture communications and different trends. But how were you capturing that and sharing it across back then, uh, that intelligence? <coughs> I'm sure there are platforms, but could, you, could that platform relate to something we're aware of today? Yeah, well, we have a platform called ConnectWorks. So I can show you a demo um, momentarily or later. But um, capturing that, and you know, there's lots of great organizations that do knowledge management well. Um, but we try and move away from and you can do this now with tech, you know, machine learning and quite simple sort of tagging and notifications. It's got to be a sort of live document um, rather than it's knowledge management, it's stored over here. It's, 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 it's got to be sort of live. And that's why at ConnectWorks we integrate with the Slacks and the, in a face, you know, Facebook at work um, type companies because they're, they're doing some really great things about connecting the organisation. So... Um, I, I can talk to you about that afterwards. Well, let's give Graham another round of applause. That was really interesting. Thank you. Um, and please join us again next week for our next talk, which will be from Open Knowledge International. You've been listening to a Friday lunchtime lecture brought to you by the Open Data Institute.